BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, good morning there and welcome to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us. Well, breaking news yesterday from our founder, John Solomon, President Trump filling a campaign promise days before his term ends. He declassified FBI documents related to impeachment witnesses. The best man to talk about this is our founder and editor-in-chief, John Solomon. Good morning, John. Good morning, Carrie. Good to be with you. So you broke this story last night. Uh, it's, it's caught like wildfire. What are the biggest takeaways that our viewers should know? Well, listen, these are the documents he promised to declassify from the Russia probe, and they make a lot of interesting big-picture connections. For instance, what really was Christopher Steele's motive in leaking the false Russia uh, collusion narrative? And the answer is, he told the FBI a year after he was fired, they brought him back, they interviewed him, and he said, listen, I was worried about two things. The first is, the Hillary Clinton email scandal cropped up again when James Comey reopened the case at the end of the 2016 election, and I wanted to counteract that, so I leaked this stuff about Donald Trump, which turned out to be false. The second thing he said, and I think it's just as important, is he didn't think Donald Trump would be very good for his home country of Great Britain, so he didn't want to see Donald Trump elected as president. That means a foreigner intervened in our election to take uh, an interest of his own country. Hillary Clinton, because she had paid um, uh, Christopher Steele, actually created or set in motion the greatest foreign intervention we now have documented in the 2016 election. Really remarkable. Absolutely, remarkable indeed. But in terms of what this means, a lot of this, at least the precursors, this motivation is the new thing. But a lot of what we know already had already been out there as far as the lies, the, the origins of this investigation. What do you think this means going forward? Well, listen, I think one of the big revelations that came out, I've been covering this for two years. I certainly didn't expect to see these in the documents. Um, The uh, famous impeachment witness, Fiona Hill, she was one of the star witnesses for the Democrats during President Trump's 2019. Oh, yeah, the uh, media loved her. They loved her fancy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she's a Bush appointee. She Mm -hmm. worked in the Bush uh, uh, office first. She is the person, according to Christopher Steele, that originally connects him to his famous subsource, the subsource that makes up all the salacious allegations, then later says, I don't think I told him that, or that's not accurately what I said, or that was just bar talk. He disowned what he had given uh, Steele when the FBI interviewed him. We had no idea, certainly I didn't, that Fiona Hill, the impeachment witness, is the person that connected Christopher Steele uh, to the subsource, who then gives the most salacious and accurate information that was then spread across America. And what's interesting, in her testimony during the impeachment, Fiona Hill tried to distance herself from the dossier, saying, I think it was a bad idea. It could have been Russian misinformation. But she didn't tell us then she had made that connection earlier to uh, the subsource that Christopher Steele used for the primary uh, source of his uh, dossier. Do you think there'll be any accountability if we know, like you said, that Christopher Steele, a British foreign national, was trying to intervene for his home country? Is this something that could be punishable? I mean, is this something, what, what's, what's the accountability here? Yeah, but none other than public shaming and public recognition that we had the interference wrong. It wasn't Donald Trump working with Russia to interfere in our election. It was Hillary Clinton working with a British foreign national who was fed Russian disinformation by the Russians who influenced the 2016 election. The accountability 
part of this is focused on a very narrow issue. The, uh, the number of FBI employees and Justice Department employees who may have engaged in fraud and deceiving both the FISA court, which gave them all the surveillance warrants, and the Congress that were asking questions and getting very inaccurate answers early on in the Russia uh, collusion investigation. So do we know, did anyone lie under oath during the Trump impeachment hearings? Uh, listen, there's a lot of questions about some of the witnesses, uh, not necessarily all related to Russia, but related to facts around the Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Ukraine scandal. A lot of people have raised questions about Ambassador Yovanovitch's testimony. I'm, I'm aware of a document that could be declassified as early as next week at the State Department in which George Kent, the, one of the famous impeachment witnesses alongside of Fiona Hill, he was a guy with the bow tie, very well-spoken, and quite frankly, somebody who really stood up and, uh, against Burisma, saw the, Joe Biden creating a conflict of interest in Ukraine. He, in a private email that was classified uh, by the State Department, uh, uh, raised concerns that Joe Biden had basically created the whole aura by which Burisma had become a scandal. I'd like to see that document declassified by Mike Pompeo before he leaves. I think it'll bring a lot of knowledge to exactly what the State Department thought about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. And remarkably, that document was kept from the Trump impeachment team. And only recently was the Senate, which had done all of its reports on this, alerted to its existence. It's still not public. I hope that gets public. That'll bring a lot of more context that the State Department really thought what Joe Biden and Hunter Biden were up to in Ukraine was a, a, a bad apple, you know, bad, rotten apples. And I think um, that was sort of glossed over in impeachment. It's becoming more and more clear now as we get documents public. Well, we know that many Americans say that if they had known what they know now about Hunter Biden, they would have changed their vote. Uh, it all yeah. just seems, sadly, uh, just from a public standpoint, this is all too little too late that the public just didn't know. Yeah, listen, the machinations of the bureaucracy did a wonderful job suppressing the most damaging information to both their institutions and to the Democrats. And uh, the American public voted in 2020 for uh, this election without fully knowing what had happened in 2016. And I think that's a travesty that history will look back at badly. Well, you're always leading the charge on transparency, accountability. Let's talk real quick about another story. Daniel Payne, our colleague, wrote about an arrest. There has been, you interviewed this guy. Uh, John Sullivan is his name. He's a Utah resident. He's an anti-Trump activist. He's been arrested and charged with participating in the Capitol riot. Tell us what we know about this guy. Yeah, so Daniel actually interviewed him about a week ago, and he tried to claim that the reason he was in the Capitol taking the photographs was he was working as a journalist. A little suspicious claim because of the fact that we know back in August of 2016 in Utah, he had already been charged with participating and inciting an earlier riot where a, a shooting had occurred. So he already had been charged for earlier anarchist behavior. Uh, yet last night, the FBI uh, charged uh, John Sullivan for participating in the Capitol riots on January 6th saying that he wasn't there as a journalist. He actually was there inciting violence. They, they have quotes from his own videotapes that he took with his cameras in which he's urging people in very foul language to burn the place down, to take stuff, to, to charge the Capitol. The sort of incitement that the president's been accused of, we now know a liberal anarchist uh, did and has been charged with the FBI. And the, his own, the evidence against him is his own videotapes, according to the FBI. Well, you can't refute that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, John Solomon. We appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Have a good day. You too. And being from the great city of Utah myself, I have to say, John Solomon, really, your mom, your dad, I'm sure they taught you better than this. What are you doing? All right, we'll be right back with Steve Cortez, who's been with the Trump campaign for a long time. He's going to give us his take. Stay tuned.
Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield. Glad you're with us. Well, there's an ongoing debate right now about what does the Constitution say about whether President Trump can be tried after office, whether the impeachment charges from the House can be moved over to the Senate, and whether the Senate could even legally, under the Constitution, convict the president. There's a big debate about this. Senator Tom Cotton, who's a Republican from Arkansas, he says that the Senate lacks authority to hold impeachment trial once President Trump leaves office. He says that the Senate lacks constitutional authority to conduct impeachment proceedings against a former president. The founders designed the impeachment process as a way to remove office holders from public office, not an inquest against private citizens. Cotton said in a statement, the other argument though on the other side from the National Constitution Center, the director there, his name is Jeffrey Rosen, he put a statement in the Politico playbook saying that yes, from his perspective, and he's a constitutional expert, he says yes, they can. Joining me to discuss all of this is Steve Cortez. He's an advisor to President Trump. He worked for a very long time helping the president on his 2016 campaign and 2020. Good morning, Steve. Oh, we'll be right back with him in a second. But so the argument here, McConnell is saying, Mitch McConnell, who is the Republican leader in the Senate, he says that even if the Senate process were to begin this week and move promptly, no final verdict will be reached until after President Trump had left office. This is not a decision I am making. It is a fact. The president-elect himself stated last week that his inauguration on January 20th is the quickest path for any change in the occupant of the presidency. On the other side, the statement from Senator Chuck Schumer, who's the Democratic leader, he says, now that the House of Representatives has acted, the Senate will hold a fair trial on the impeachment of Donald J. Trump for his role in inciting the violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and attempting to overturn a free and fair election. A Senate trial can begin immediately with agreement from the current Senate Majority Leader to reconvene the Senate for an emergency session, or it will begin after January 19th. But make no mistake, there will be an impeachment trial in the United States Senate there will be a vote on convicting the president for high crimes and misdemeanors. And if the president is convicted, there will be a vote on barring him from running again. All right, Steve, we got you there? Yes, hello. Thank Hi. you for having me. Good morning. So what's your sense there from, you, you've been working with the campaign for a long time. What's the verdict from what you're hearing within the campaign about this? Does the Senate have the right to try a president after he leaves office? You know, it doesn't make logical sense to me. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I will tell you this, and speaking only for myself, uh, I really want the trial. You know, now that the House has has really committed the mistake, the grave error of impeaching this president in a sham proceeding, now that that has been done, I want the trial. And I'll tell you why, you know, for a couple of reasons. I think, number one, it will give the president uh, a chance before the nation, before, in fact, the world, to talk honestly about what's happened in this country over the last couple of weeks and to make the strong case that he did not, in fact, incite any kind of violence, quite the opposite if we look at his actual words and deeds, both before, during that day of January 6th, as well as after. But then secondly, and I think this might even be more important, Carrie, in the resolution that was passed by the House in their impeachment, which is effectively an indictment, they accused the president of spreading, quote, false allegations 
about election fraud and constitutional violations in these battleground states. Given that that predicate is included in the impeachment, that means that the president and his defense team can effectively litigate that issue in, in a de facto court of law, which is what the Senate would become for an impeachment trial. And I really relish that opportunity. I think it's critical for the American people. We have incredibly solid evidence to present, statistical evidence as well as constitutional evidence, that the president did indeed win the legal vote. And I, for one, look forward to litigating that in front of the American people at a Senate trial. So I hope the Senate trial does happen. I think it would be good for the president, good for our movement, and good for our country in terms of a search for actual truth. Now, this is a very interesting argument you're making, Steve. You're saying that you think that by having the Senate trial, this would actually help the president because a lot of these court cases that were dismissed, they weren't dismissed on the substance. They were dismissed on Correct. standing. And so you're saying that this would be a trial where the substance could be argued. That, that's exactly right. You know, and I've long said that I think the court of public opinion is more important than actual courtrooms. And, and you're exactly correct, Carrie. Unfortunately, most courts in this country took the cowardly way out and simply said, we don't want to hear the case, including the highest court in the land. So the idea that, the, you know, you often hear corporate media talk about how the Trump campaign lost 60 times or 70 times. Uh, that's simply not the reality. The reality is most courts, first of all, a lot of those, those suits were not even brought by the Trump campaign. They were brought by allies. But regardless, the point is courts decided to not hear the evidence. It was not litigated. There was not evidence presented. So I, I think it would be great, again, for the president, for the movement, for the country to do that in a serious way before television cameras, before the country. I, I think it was a, a real mistake of Nancy Pelosi to include that predicate uh, in this sham impeachment. But the fact that she did, it's now there, it's now voted on. So I did say to the Senate, let's have that trial. And I also believe it would be important, not just in terms of fact finding, but for in terms of political momentum, I think it would be important for the country to uh, to prove to the American people just what a farce this impeachment was uh, and to convince and persuade the American people that Nancy Pelosi can no longer be speaker and the Dems can no longer be in charge of the House. I think it would give us tremendous momentum toward winning back the House of Representatives in 2022 if we have a very effective defense case made at a Senate trial. Let's talk about the Republican Party just moving forward, regardless of what happens with this impeachment trial. You have arguments from Republicans who are saying that despite there were 10, so there were 10 Republican defections that just happened to vote for impeachment for the second impeachment. The Congresswoman, for example, from Colorado, Lauren Boebert, she said that a majority of the U.S. House GOP caucus voted against impeachment, but some news reports are suggesting that the GOP is fractured and no longer behind Trump. She pointed out that only 10, only 10 voted yes. That's it's about 95, 96 percent of the party that voted no. So this doesn't seem like much of a fracture if we're speaking statistically here. That is correct. Uh, and, and it certainly is not a fractured party when it comes to American voters. Uh, I will concede that, you know, yes, among power brokers uh, who historically held sway over the Republican Party, particularly 2015 and prior Republican parties, is, is there a split over the future of the party? Sure there is. I mean, there are people like Mitch McConnell and Liz Cheney who yearn for a pre-Trump, uh, pre-America first Republican establishment corporatist globalist party. Those forces are out there. But when it comes to the voters, Carrie, this is really a settled issue, and that's not my opinion. The data shows this. If we look just yesterday, a new poll released by Axios shows that of Trump voters, 92% already state, and this poll was just taken, so this is post-Capitol riot, 92% of Trump voters 
tell Axios in a poll that they want him to be the nominee in 2024. Uh, so they are still almost unanimously united behind the president and not just the president as an individual, but behind this America first movement. I think that's even the more important point. The president is clearly the indispensable leader of the movement right now, but it's also important for us to recognize that the party has been transformed among the voters. Again, I will concede there's some Washington power brokers who think differently, but the voters uh, concur that we are now a workers America first movement, the Republican Party. Well, and certainly President Trump got more minority voters than any Republican since 1960. So that was certainly a generational change that he brought about for the Republican Party. Absolutely. It was you know, just critical. And in particularly among Hispanic voters, that's something that I personally worked extremely hard on during the campaign. Uh, and we had just an incredible achievements among Hispanic voters on November 3rd in the state of Florida. According to CNN, we split the Hispanic vote. It's part of the reason that the president ended up winning that that state that was supposedly going to be razor, uh, razor thin margin. And in fact, we won it by almost 400,000 votes, largely because of Hispanics in the state of Texas, uh, which was, was allegedly going to go blue. We went 30% Hispanic vote. Sure. All right, Steve Cortez, hang on right there. We're gonna hold you right after the break. We're gonna take a quick break and more with Steve Cortez. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Good morning. Welcome back here to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield. Glad you're with us. Steve Cortez is with us here again. He's a senior advisor to the Trump 2020 campaign, but his real passion is economics. And before his political life, he was a Wall Street guru. So let's talk about these unemployment numbers, Steve. Really, really disappointing. You had new unemployment claims jump to 965,000, the highest level since August. The number of new unemployment claims jumped by 181,000. This is the, the biggest increase since the beginning of the pandemic, and it's the right. highest number of new unemployment claims since August. So what's happening here? Carrie, incredibly concerning economic numbers, uh, in addition to the employment ones that you cite just today, just about an hour ago, I guess two hours ago, we got out really concerning retail sales numbers, very disappointing retail sales numbers for December, uh, November as well, the same. What's going on, here's the unfortunate reality. We had a ton of economic momentum from the spring lockdown lows all through the summer into November. But since the election, what we see now is a really worrisome reversal downward, a trend down in almost every data point in November and December. And I believe two things have happened here. Number one, obviously the connected to politics is the fact that Joe Biden is going to be the president of the United States and that he promises a decidedly statist and anti-growth agenda. So I think that's number one. But number two, and it's also related to politics, um, are the lockdowns in the, in the fourth quarter across this country, particularly in blue democratic jurisdictions, the lockdowns intensified into the fourth quarter. And as evidence of that, in the most recent non-farm payrolls jobs report that was released, 500,000 jobs were lost in the hospitality sector. About 375,000 of those came specifically from bars and restaurants. What we saw is, particularly in the northern geographies of the United States, once it started to get cold, and oh, no, outdoor thank you very much. no longer 
was no longer practical, we saw massive job losses because of the draconian lockdowns. So I think it's a combination of the Biden win and totally unnecessary and unscientific lockdowns that are forcing really unfortunate turns downward in the data. This is really worrisome. So let's talk about this, these shutdown policies because a lot of them, at least the governors who are doing it and, and the mayor here in D.C., they're saying they're doing it because there's been a big spike in COVID cases because of the winter. Is this, I mean, the, the calculus here of preserving lives, but what's your read on just the vaccine? Because it, the vaccine, uh, the President Trump had tried to get 20 million people vaccinated by the end of 2020. That didn't happen. So is a lot of this what we're seeing with the unemployment because of the vaccine not been getting out there quickly enough and then just the spike in COVID? Well, listen, no, I, again, I don't think it's because of an actual spike in COVID. I think it's because of totally unrealistic and unscientific lockdowns. For example, if you look at the state of Florida, which I think has really been the exemplar for the rest of the country, a place that is largely operating normally, meaning kids are in school, stores are open, restaurants are busy, people are going to church. Now, a lot of Floridians are deciding very intelligently. They're, they're assessing their own risk profiles, and they are deciding what makes sense for them in terms of their risk tolerance regarding the virus. But the governor there, I think the best governor perhaps in America, is largely leaving that decision up to citizens and up to businesses. And what do we see on virus metrics? Well, Florida is actually doing far better than places that have harsh lockdowns, places like my home state of Illinois or New York. So we, we know that the lockdowns don't prevent virus spread anyway, but the, the lockdowns are very effective, unfortunately, at smashing civil liberties and at destroying economies. Here's what's also interesting, though, Carrie, just in the last couple of days, we're suddenly seeing some of these blue state governors and mayors start to get realistic. So Governor Cuomo actually has finally admitted at long last, guess what? We have to reopen. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago actually said, I mean, it was unbelievable. She shocked the city of Chicago and said, we need to reopen bars and restaurants. Now, I think it's very politically convenient that they're doing that now that their guy is the incoming president of the United States. So the science didn't change, but the political science sure did. Nonetheless, even if they got there for the wrong reasons, I welcome them finally coming to the right conclusion, which is that we have to reopen. And again, I think the economic downturn that we've seen in November and December is due to two things, the election of Joe Biden, and then also the harshness of lockdowns. So we, we really need, this is very, very concerning. The recovery, the economic recovery in this country is still fragile and there are reasons to be really concerned right now. So let's talk about the COVID plan and the stimulus plan that Biden has. So he just unveiled a 1.9 trillion plan and he says that he wants to give $1,400 for eligible Americans that would get Americans up to that 2000 that President Trump was wanting on top of the 600 right. that was already passed in 2020 that President Trump signed into law. The big question, though, the Wall Street Journal had a big op-ed this morning with two scholars, and they said when you look at history, Gerald Ford tried this, Jimmy Carter tried this, Barack Obama tried this, George W. Bush, they all tried stimulus payments like this. And they found that only a small portion of the money that is given to people is actually spent. And even the amount that uh, we just got last year, only 15% of this, according to a study, was actually spent. It was, it was actually injected into the economy. Most people, 85% of that money was either saved or it was used to pay down debt. So this wasn't an injection into the economy. Is this wise here to, to put more debt on our country? 
You know, Carrie, I think it is. And here's why. You know, first, I would say I'm never going to criticize people for the decisions they make with their money once it becomes their money. The government sends it to them. If they decide to improve their financial situation by paying down debt or increasing their savings, uh, I think that is a good thing. I agree with President Trump that this payment should have happened uh, before the election. I, I believe if Mitch McConnell, by the way, had gotten to work on this agenda, he would still be the majority leader uh, going into the, the rest of this year. I think we would have won those Georgia elections if he simply moved on this. Here's why, though, I think in general, look, I don't like the government showering people with money. But here's why it makes sense right now is because the government shut down the economy and uh, did so on a national basis in the spring and then lately has still done so, you know, again, in a lot of these liberal blue states. When the government is shutting down the economy, when it, when it is shutting down school and businesses, the government has an obligation to be part of the solution, part of the bridge economically back to normalcy. So while this is not um, a, a predicate for successful policy going forward, simply sending people checks, I do think it is very necessary right now. And politically, it's incredibly popular right now. You know, again, I think we would still have the Senate majority if this had simply happened, if Mitch McConnell would have moved on this and agreed with President Trump. Joe Biden, one of the few areas that Biden and Trump probably agree, they're actually on the same page regarding these payments. Interesting. Let's move to one final topic here, the issue of censorship and freedom of speech. So looking outside the United States, Angela Merkel, who is the chancellor of Germany and also the president of Mexico, uh, AMLO and Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, they have spoken out against social media bias and social media bans. We also saw leaders in Australia and Poland. A lot of people around the world say what happened with Twitter banning the president is troubling, and they say that it restricts freedom of speech. Do you agree with this? And, and do you think, I mean, all of the, the liberal sentiment about Trump was that he was going against the world, but it seems that the world is supporting him here. Right. No, hey, listen, I'm certainly not one who's going to agree often with leftist leaders like Merkel and like AMLO, but they're exactly correct right here. And thankfully, they see what a lot of liberals in America uh, seem unwilling to to acknowledge. And that is that, that a digital iron curtain descends upon our country right now. You know, the, the way that you are supposed to in American history and per the First Amendment, the way you're supposed to counter ideas you don't agree with or ideas you regard as incorrect is with better ideas, the way to counter speech you don't like is with better and more persuasive speech, not through silencing the ideas. So we need more ideas, we need more speech. That has always been the American way. It's one of the key reasons we have so succeeded economically and politically. The rest of the world seems to know that right now. Silicon Valley and the Democratic Party. All right, Steve Cortez, thanks so much. We'll be right back with Cal Thomas, stay tuned. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey there, good morning, and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, glad you're with us. Well, the country is in lockdown with COVID and here in our nation's capital, we are in lockdown also for the inauguration. There's a lot of chaos right now. There's a lot of anger, there's a lot of division, there's a lot of bitterness. My next guest is an author and a nationally syndicated columnist. He's got some wisdom here for us to talk about how can we bring this country together. His name is Cal Thomas, and he is the author of the book called America's Expiration Date, The Fall of Empires, Superpowers, and the Future of the United States. Good morning, Cal. Good morning, Carrie. Thanks for having me on. 
So good to have you. So let's talk about your latest Washington Times column about the issue of divisiveness. So the headline says, Democrats' vindictiveness against Trump will further divide the country. You say that President-elect Joe Biden has called for healing and unity, but he too has contributed to turning up the heat with some of his anti-Trump and anti-Republican comments. This proves a point I have previously made. The antithesis of the proverb, a soft answer turns away wrath, is that a hard answer increases wrath. So Cal, we as a country, no one is taking this proverb seriously. No one is giving soft answers. No one is turning away wrath. What do we do? Well, unfortunately, Carrie, uh, combat uh, raises money, it raises ratings, and uh, it raises political power. And if it didn't, uh, they wouldn't be doing it. I'm currently rereading Carl Sandburg's multi-volume Abraham Lincoln, The War Years, and it's amazing how things have not changed in over 150 years. The media were attacking Lincoln. Uh, politicians were attacking each other, including within Lincoln's own newly formed Republican Party. So, you know, you can dress up people differently, you can provide different modes of transportation, but the one thing you can't do is change human nature. And this sort of thing works. It works for the politicians, it works for the fundraisers. I asked a fundraiser once why he never sent out a positive mail uh, on what he was doing with people's donations. And he told me cynically, you can't raise money on a positive. There was some guy who started a good newspaper back in the 1970s. He said people were tired of hearing bad news. It went out of business the same year. So people talk a good deal about unity and coming together and compromise and all of the rest of it. But uh, right now I fear that we are at each other's throats and I don't see anything improving, especially after this last election cycle, at least not in the near future. But in the long run, and even just like, I'll give you an example. You said it's, it's, it's good for the bottom line, it's good for money. Facebook and Twitter just lost billions of dollars of value for shutting down and suppressing viewpoints that they don't like. And then you just look at, at you mentioned the Civil War. That was when the country was crippled. And so, so how can anyone say that conflict is good for the bottom line when we see how much it actually devastates people's lives? Well, the problem is, as we've seen, it's the elites who benefit. It's the lobbyists on K Street. It's the lawyers. It's the party leaders. It's members in, of Congress whose primary goal is not solving things, but getting reelected. The problem when you solve an issue is that you no longer have the issue. Everyone knows what needs to be done to fix the economy. I mean, if you want to if you want to really fix the economy, the answer is not sending more checks from Washington based on borrowed money and increasing the national debt, which is 28 trillion. And Biden wants to spend at least one one point nine trillion more. The answer is to carefully and cautiously reopen the economy by allowing businesses to reopen, restaurants to reopen, people to become reemployed and not addicted to a government check. Uh, the answer for Social Security and Medicare. We know what the answers are, but the politicians would rather fight. And as long as their primary objective is to remain in office, then nothing is going to change, I'm sorry to say. We need term limits, but the people who would have to impose them are the ones who would benefit least from them, that is, members of Congress. So, uh, you know, middle America doesn't behave like this. Uh, middle America doesn't curse its neighbor if they belong to a different party or political persuasion. This is being ginned up by, uh, by the media again and fundraisers and political operatives who have a personal interest in keeping us separated. So let's talk about on a more 
just forward-looking note, um, you put out a really interesting tweet, and you said, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, if politics is unsatisfying, perhaps we are looking in the wrong place and to the wrong persons for satisfaction. Try God. Nothing else has worked, has it? He never fails. And you're an organizer for the National Prayer Breakfast. What hope, what, what, what's going to happen? What do you think the mood will be at the National Prayer Breakfast this year? When you say people should turn to God, what does that mean? Because sometimes when people say that, they say, well, there are people dying here, and, and you're just putting your head in the clouds. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, first, there won't be a National Prayer Breakfast this year because of COVID. They canceled it. They're just having a small gathering on Capitol Hill. There are no media dinners, no other dinners around uh, the hotel in Washington where this is usually held. The primary purpose of the National Prayer Breakfast is to introduce each, each other to people of different political and even religious persuasions. And it's worked quite well on the uh, macro level over the years in different countries and indeed in this one. Our major problem, Carrie, is that we don't really know each other anymore. We apply labels to people, liberal, conservative, right, left, um, uh, and we're known for members of groups. And if you violate the doctrines and the ideology of the group, you are not sufficiently black or female or Hispanic or whatever. It's groupthink, as George Orwell called it in 1984. And that's very sad because the notion of the individual now has been subsumed into groupthink. And uh, no, but nobody's allowed to think on their own. If you're an African-American person who happens to be a Republican, then you're denounced as being insufficiently black. I mean, Biden said that during the campaign. He told an interviewer that if you're black and don't vote for me, then, you know, you're not sufficiently black. And that's the kind of attitude out there that continues the division. Donald Trump has done something no other Republican president has done in my lifetime. He's brought in more African-Americans, more, Has more Hispanics, right. more Latinos right. into uh, yes. the... All right, Cal, we got to leave it right there. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be right back with Father Pavone, a Catholic priest. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us this Friday morning. I hope you are geared up to get some rest and relaxation this weekend. But joining me to discuss a, the latest on pro-life issues is Father Frank, Frank Pavone. He is a Catholic priest and friend of the show. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, uh, Carrie. Great to be with you. Good to have you. So let's talk about what just happened with the Supreme Court. So the U.S. Supreme Court just ruled that the government enforcement of an abortion pill rule, um, they said that uh, people, women, were trying to get it in the mail. They said because of COVID, they were afraid and they were scared to go and get their abortion pills in person, and they were getting it through the mail. And the Supreme Court said, no, actually, you need to go in person. So what's your read on this? But I guess looking forward, do you think that this will change under a Biden administration? 
Well, okay. So President Trump uh, said, uh, look, we have to preserve the safety of uh, women. And he also, of course, wants to save the lives of the, of the children in the womb. But he said, no, they have to see the doctor in person. And because it's more than just a pill, it's a very powerful drug technique. Uh, more and more in, in the United States, somewhere between depending where you go, 25% to 40% of the abortions are now being done by this uh, chemical technique. And um, it has a lot of risks. So the president said, no, the, the person should see the doctor. And a federal judge struck down that rule and imposed the nationwide injunction. The Supreme Court came back, however, got rid of that injunction and said President Trump was right. Uh, this should be a, a safety rule imposed here. Now, first of all, it is an interesting issue here. Not only are we talking about a dangerous drug technique, which, by the way, starves a baby who already has arms, legs, a beating heart and all the major bodily uh, systems in place. I mean, this is people usually don't think about this when they think about, you know, an abortion pill. But secondly, there's an interesting question here. And and uh, uh, and that is about these nationwide injunctions. We've seen it on other issues, too. The president of the United States puts a policy in place and, uh, you know, any judge anywhere in the country on the district level can say, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. And then all of a sudden he or she is setting national policy. Now, this is still an open constitutional question. And I'm very encouraged by this decision, not only what it does to protect the babies and the moms, but what it does to start, perhaps the Supreme Court is starting to clarify that, you know, judges ought to, ought to rein it in a little bit in trying to impose these nationwide injunctions. In terms of what you said about the Biden administration, yes, we can expect absolutely every pro-life provision that the president is empowered to uh, to strike down, we can expect Biden to, you know, sweep it away. Uh, and every possible pro-abortion uh, provision, uh, he and the Democrats will will try to ram down our throats. And what about at the state level? Because uh, let's say, for example, the COVID shutdowns, because this rule was about getting abortion treatment through the mail. And yeah. uh, a lot of the state shutdowns, I mean, we're driven at the state level when it comes to these shutdown policies. Do you think states that are pro-life will be able to step up and have more of a voice under this Biden administration? Because a lot of the policies that they're making at the state level, uh, they could be empowered or at least say, hey, uh, we, we want to have pro-life policies here. You know, Carrie, this is an important point you're making because I think it's going to shape very much the pro-life battle over the next two years because we can't lose sight of the fact that we were very victorious in this 2020 election on the state level. Republicans have uh, control of 61 out of 98 partisan state legislative bodies. Uh, we have more trifectas than the Democrats have. That is where the governor's uh, office uh, and the state House and Senate are all under Republican control. So it is very much at the state level that we look forward uh, in these next two years to tremendous pro-life progress. And, uh, and, and really, people need to be more than ever before getting to know their state officials, starting with their legislators and their other state officials, because this is going to be more important than ever in safeguarding, as you say, the, the, not only the pro-life policies, but uh, so many other policies that we value as conservatives. 
And it's interesting, I had a Democrats for Life leader here on my program, and she said the argument that Democrats for Life are making is that this is about equal access to parenthood. Because, for example, when you see uh, black women, they make up a much bigger share of abortions than they are for their population. She says this is discriminatory because it's basically telling black women, you can't do it. You can't be a mother. Uh, Latino mothers are also disproportionately represented to say we need to give equal access to parenthood. Uh, it completely turns this argument on its head. Do you guys work with Democrats for Life? We certainly do uh, and have done so for many, many years. Uh, I know uh, Kristen Day, Teresa Bukovinak, and all the leadership over there at Democrats for Life. And, and I believe that under uh, a Biden administration and with, uh, with Democrat uh, majority still in the House and effectively control of the Senate, uh, that their voice is more important than ever. Because the Democrat Party and its abortion extremism does not represent uh, millions and millions of grassroots Americans who identify as Democrat, but nevertheless are pro-life. And uh, so I, I'm glad that you you had them on. And and yes, they're they're absolutely right in in the point that you just made. It would be nice if a party that uh, is so into identity politics and you know wants to see itself as champion championing these various minority groups would pay attention to how abortion is disproportionately harming these communities. Well, they like to say they're disproportionately helping. Obviously, there's a huge disagreement about whether that's the case, but she is right. saying they're not having the right to be a parent as, as much as you see uh, for other groups. But Father Frank Pavone, as always, we appreciate your perspective. Good to be with you. Take care. And we'll be right back. We've got some footage about inauguration. Uh, looking at the streets of D.C., what do the streets look like? There are troops here walking all over. I'll show you some footage right after the break. Hey there, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield and this Friday morning I took a stroll into the office and I took some footage. I want to play it for you. It, it, honestly, it's, it's disturbing just to see what's happened here in our nation's capital. These are the troops that I walked by. Reported 20,000 National Guard troops are going to be coming to the Capitol here. We love our troops here at, here at Just the News and Real America's Voice. We love our troops. We're so grateful they're here. But just the way they've been treated, the way they've having, been having to sleep on the ground in the Capitol, the way that our mayor here has refused to put them up in hotels, even though the hotels are empty here. And just seeing the boarded up buildings. We have footage of the boarded up buildings here also in Washington. This looks like a third world country. This looks like Argentina. This looks like Latin America or South America. This is something that you would not expect to see in the United States of America. But we saw it. I mean, this is just more of the same from what we saw also over the summer with the riots, the Antifa and the Black Lives Matter riots. The fact that this is happening now on the, the fringe right, that we have to be concerned about riots. This is not America. This is not what we were founded for. We were founded to be a more perfect union. And all of us are hoping for a safe inauguration, a peaceful transition of power. We really urge anyone in our audience, please, if you hear anything about any sort of violence being planned, report it immediately. I mean, this, this is America. We really need to come together. We appreciate your time and hope you have a great weekend. Stay tuned here for War Room. It's coming up next. <laughs> 